an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, can historic Northgate Elementary be saved while also addressing equity issues for current students? I believe that it really comes down to where your values are. Do you value this white man who created this building 69 roughly years ago? Or do you value the education of a vulnerable, marginalized population of children? And then, from the archives, remembering a special trip to France for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Seattle's morning news. And here is our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, who joins us every Friday morning for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, it's a thing called the Oxmobile which Ezra Meeker used to travel the Oregon Trail in 1928. And wouldn't you know it, it's missing, and Felix is determined to find it. First of all, Ezra Meeker's a larger-than-life figure from Washington's past. He came here by covered wagon on the Oregon Trail back in 1852. He was an entrepreneur and historian, prolific author, and hop king who built a Meeker mansion in Puyallup. He had a big beard, not unlike your pandemic facial hair, Dave. <laughs> yes. If you see the photos there. One so. thing Ezra Meeker set about doing in the early 20th century was to make sure that the history of the Oregon Trail was preserved and commemorated. Until his death at age 98 in 1928, he traveled back and forth across the country, giving history talks, dedicating monuments along that route that settlers took to the Northwest in the 1840s and 1850s. In that last summer before he died... The Ford Motor Company made Ezra Meeker a special vehicle for his travels. It was a Ford truck chassis with the body of a prairie schooner wagon built onto it. Somebody cleverly named it the Oxmobile for the ox that pulled the covered wagons. Now, it had a big canvas cover, just like a wagon, and it read in giant letters over the old Oregon Trail. It had beds and a stove and electrical gear actually provided by Thomas Edison. Meeker had a lot of friends. Now, in that summer of 1928, Meeker toured New England and headed to Detroit in September where Henry Ford had offered to put better shocks from a Lincoln on the Oxmobile. In Detroit, Meeker got ill and was hospitalized. A month later, he went home to Seattle by train, where he died in December. Now, the Oxmobile stayed with the Ford Company. It was the very early years of that Henry Ford Museum. That would open in 1933. It has all kinds of buildings and vehicles and huge artifacts. The Boy Scouts borrowed the Oxmobile for the covered wagon centennial in Wyoming in 1930. It then appeared on the White House lawn at a Pony Express 75th anniversary event in 1935, and that was the last time it was photographed. It went to some kind of a Boy Scout event at Chesapeake Bay, then was shipped back to the Ford plant in Michigan. It was mentioned in a newspaper article in 1943, but it's never been seen since. Hmm. Now, Ezra Meeker scholars have searched for the Oxmobile over the years, and the Henry Ford Museum have told a few people that I've talked to that the Oxmobile was never accessioned. That's the fancy museum word for taking formal possession of an artifact. And now nobody at the museum has any idea where it is. And it's not like a piece of paper or a set of keys that I've misplaced often. It's a full-size vehicle, and it's gone. Uh, the Ezra Meeker Historical Society people down there in Puyallup say that, like, 30 years ago, the old-timers there thought it might show up in a car magazine for sale someday, you know, before the Internet. Mm -hmm. Never happened, right? And as to where it turned out, um, one theory is from Andy Anderson of Ezra Meeker Society 
that they just, uh, the Ford people turned it back into a regular truck and just drove it till it wore out and then it was scrapped. But it's, it's, if you look at the picture, it's this cool artifact. You know, it's not unlike the Wienermobile, which was invented in 1936. <laughs> That's true. It looks a little like the Wienermobile. Yeah, or the Batmobile, which was first named in print in 1941. This is the era of, you know, blank mobiles, right? We had mm -hmm. the Batmobile, Wienermobile, and we had the Oxmobile. It does not look like anything like the Batmobile. <laughs> well, it's, but it's the same spirit, right? Calling attention to something that has a special, you know, a vehicle with a special appearance. Anyway, mm -hmm. we have a photo of My Northwest, and we have the story. And I'd love to see it if Cairo listeners and My Northwest readers could help solve the mystery. Who knows? Maybe some, some evil collector has it stashed away somewhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's parked in some roadside place that somebody's overlooked for the last 80 years. I know it's a pipe dream, I realize. But wouldn't it be cool if we could crack the mystery of the missing Oxmobile? We'd be famous, Dave. Yes, it, it, it would be cool. I don't know how famous it would make us. But uh, you've got the – now, it's got, you're going to post this on your Twitter feed, right? Definitely, yes. Okay. Well, once you see it, you'll realize you cannot miss it were you to encounter it. There'd be no mistaking it at all. So Keep your uh, eyes peeled. Yes. And maybe if there's some gargoyles in it, that would be even better, right? Another lost cause. <laughs> That's right. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Right from the start – Spokane's charm and lively spirit put us in a holiday mood, which was heightened when we reached the country club where the Washington State Open Golf Tournament was in progress. A group of neighbors and former students of Northgate Elementary in North Seattle have launched a last-ditch effort to save this school, which was built in 1956, from being demolished. Our resident historian Felix Spinell is here to try to untangle a complicated story of historic preservation versus modern education. And Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, Northgate Elementary is going to be replaced with a new school. The fence went up around the big playfield last week where the new school will be built. They'll then demolish the old one, which was designed by noted Northwest architect Paul Theory in mid-century modern style. You know, you might remember he's the guy who designed what's now Climate Pledge Arena, those uh, signature kind of roof line, and also said in the 1940s, hey, don't build the viaduct, build a tunnel under downtown instead. Mm. So a true visionary. I heard about this from Sean Hubbard. She went to Northgate Elementary back in the 50s, and her family has been in the neighborhood for more than 60 years. I remember going to school there, how bright and airy. The windows are amazing. It's not a gloomy school by any means. It's uh, got this quality of light in the hallways, and I just remember that viscerally as a kid, how great that was. The gigantic play field was where we would all go and just have, you know, pick up games. And, of course, four generations of my family have been on that field. And yeah. almost everyone in the neighborhood could say the same thing. Now, Sean Hubbard believes that the decision by Seattle Public Schools to demolish Northgate Elementary predates the public process that took place in 2020, and it misses an opportunity to renovate a community landmark for generations of students. We don't know because it's not made public, the information, but apparently they had planned to demolish the school way back, way back before the levy even existed. And we don't know. We don't know why they made the decision. They uh, say that the school needs renovation. It can't be brought up to code. I, I doubt that's true uh, because not too far from there is Cedar Park Elementary. That is also a Paul Theory design school. And that was successfully saved and remodeled. And it's a great school today. Everyone's actually loves it. Yeah, and in March last year, the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board held a public meeting and voted to not nominate Northgate Elementary as a city landmark because it didn't meet the landmark standards. You know, funny thing, though, back in 2012, 
The Washington State Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation said the school was likely eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. And this fact was never mentioned in the public meeting or in the staff report a year ago. Now, in choosing to not add Northgate Elementary to the city register, Seattle Landmarks board members agreed with staff that it didn't meet key criteria. They said the school is not one of Theory's better works, and other better examples still exist, like Cedar Park. Now, Jeff Murdoch was at that meeting in March 2020. He works for the nonprofit advocacy group Historic Seattle, and he studied Paul Theory. He says you can't just pick and choose which examples of a great architect's work that you save. Northgate School is really one chapter in the body of his work that tells like this investigation into concrete, different ways of expressing concrete architecture. And Cedar Park School is a beautiful uh, work with a great expression of thin shell concrete. But, um, you know, Northgate School is a different type of, of concrete construction. So it really shows like his evolution and his um, kind of development as a practitioner. You know, and these school preservation debates often bring out a lot of emotion. But listening to the audio from the Seattle Landmarks Preservation Board hearing from March 2020, this, you know, this is right before the pandemic really kicked in, it seems like there was a little more to the discussion than just the merits of the school as a historic landmark. Now, this public meeting audio isn't great, but this is Linda Sinney. She's a teacher at Northgate Elementary who's also the parent of a student there. I believe that it really comes down to where your values are. Um, do you value this white man who created this building 69 roughly years ago um, that um, some people want a landmark but does not serve as a landmark for the people that are going to use it or do you value the education of a vulnerable marginalized population children yeah so she was saying the choice was essentially between preservation or marginalized kids and Northgate Elementary, I think there's 74% of kids there are eligible for a reduced or free lunch uh, against the state average of 43%. Now, hers wasn't the only comment about the social justice and equity argument in favor of tearing down the school. The principal said something similar, as did a number of other commenters. But as landmark board member Manish Chalana pointed out, social justice criteria aren't part of the official preservation ordinance, and they don't really factor into decisions about designating landmarks. What I'm saying is this is not our, our job here is not to be, to take care, you know address equity. We cannot, and our job here is not to say it, we could, but it's not our job. You know, and of course, equity conversations are taking place everywhere. And but this might be something relatively new in the field of historic preservation. I asked Jeff Murdoch of Historic Seattle if these social justice and equity issues are in fact coming up more in public meetings about landmarks. Well, I think it's increasingly common and increasingly discussed. And it's not really part of the landmarks ordinance, but it should be. It should be a question of how we look at what's significant. You know, we have community members on the other side of the sort of social justice and equity question who are trying to preserve their sites, you know, that are important to them. And honestly, I, I felt like this building could have been adaptively reused or, you know, gone through a, a pretty serious rehabilitation and could, could have provided a great school that would sort of speak to the history of both the architecture as well as the history of the school itself. So we think preservation actually has a role in promoting this discussion. Yeah, so they're not mutually exclusive then. You can have historic preservation and renovated or adaptively reused historic buildings and not be perpetuating inequities and injustice. It's sort of, it, it seems all kind of tangled up. Now, there's a related effort underway by Four Culture. That's the Countywide Arts and Heritage Agency. They have a project called Beyond Integrity. They're looking at equity and deciding what places to save. This is sort of more along the lines of Jeff Murdoch was talking about. There doesn't seem to be any real taking into account these discussions or the debate between 
you know, preservation versus, you know, harming, continuing to harm marginalized kids. Now, as for Northgate Elementary, we reached out to the school district late last Thursday, and because of the holiday, they've not been able to get back to us with any answers to our questions. Um, there is a public hearing on March, uh, Monday, June 14th, regarding some appeals that have been made related to the new construction, not to the historic preservation question. Um, so there's still a chance that the project could be delayed, perhaps. But bottom line, if there's a school or other building in your neighborhood that you care about, it's really important to find out from the public agency that owns it if there's any plans in the work, works for it. And if you don't like those plans, you know, get involved and try to try to make a difference. It sounds like what the uh, the parent in that uh, earlier clip was saying was that we already honor plenty of white people who had an historic impact on the area. Why are we honoring one more uh, white architect when, in fact, the the neighborhood's changed and these kids need a better educational facility? Yeah, ex that's exactly. And it's in some ways that sort of conflating two unrelated topics where if that school could be preserved and you could have a nice school to serve the students who currently live there, you could accomplish both. I think that's what Jeff Murdoch was getting at. Mm -hmm. It's just a, it's sort of the cutting edge of a really interesting conversation about what historic preservation means in terms of these equity questions. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, really. Felix Bunnell, all his interviews and features are available at MyNorthwest.com. Felix, thank you. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, in 2019, Cairo Radio was in Normandy for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. This is Seattle's Morning News. Historian Felix Bennell is in Normandy for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the Allied landings that marked the beginning of the liberation of Europe after four years of Nazi occupation. Felix is brought to us by the King County Library System and joins us now from France. Hello, Felix. Hey, Dave. How are you doing today? Good. Well, uh, we arrived here yesterday after a long drive from Paris. You know, the look and feel of this area, it reminds me so much of the Skagit Valley around Mount Vernon and Laconer and Anacortes. Um, we're staying in a little village kind of east of where the landings were, and it's a resort town. When we first pulled in, it was so quiet, I was, wasn't sure if anybody else was there to mark the anniversary. We stepped outside of our little Airbnb, and I was really heartened to see a, uh, a vintage American Jeep race by us on the narrow street. Um, and a few minutes later, we, we uh, out, went on the windy beach there, and we bumped into three retired U.S. military vets in their 50s. They just arrived after a 10-hour drive from Frankfurt, Germany. And Lance Beyer, who's originally from New Orleans, told me why they'd made the trip to Normandy this year. It's a brotherhood among other vets. Uh, I've had older family members uh, that came to World War II and fought. They're long gone, but this is uh, a tribute to them. And uh, it's something we've all been wanting to do for years. We decided to come out for the 75th. And it's uh, just respect to old soldiers. And it's, uh, it's not only just the American soldiers, it's, it's everybody that fought they uh, for their countries and what they believed in at that time. To me, this is like the Mecca of World War II. So after that, we got in the car and headed for Sword Beach, which is the actual easternmost landing site um, the British landed there. On the way there, we had to cross a body of water called the Orne Canal, and we found a celebration underway. And it wasn't a somber affair. It was definitely a celebration. That music we heard at the top was uh, from uh, festivities. There was pipers and bands marching down these very narrow streets. And that spot's known as the Pegasus Bridge. It's in honor of the symbol of the Royal Air Force. And that's where the very first action of D-Day took place, just after midnight on June 6th. And there's a big monument 
that says this is the very first piece of French soil that was liberated by Allied troops, and it was a British who landed there. They came down in those um, crazy plywood gliders, uh, believe it or not, and they landed just after midnight. And the troops captured Pegasus Bridge and one other one from the Germans, and these were vitally important for the Allies to control for defensive and offensive purposes. And so we were walking across the Pegasus Bridge last night. We ran into a 93-year-old man named Albert Gibbs. He's from the UK. He's a D-Day vet. He landed here on June 10, 1944 with a supply company. And like so many guys from that era who I've talked to, he didn't want to talk about himself, but he did have a D-Day story that he wanted to make sure was told as far and wide as possible. On the road from Bayeux to La Salle, there's a farm. The farm was being used as a dressing station. And those, the taps that never made it, were buried in the, on the lawn on the side. The War Graves Commission went round collecting the lads, because there were a lot of airborne on there. And they come to this farm, and they started to work on taking the bodies out. And the farmer came out and he said, what are you doing? He said, we're taking them to the main uh, Bayou Cemetery. She said, he said, you're not. He went back indoors. He came back with a double barrel gun and he said, them fellas died for us. And we said, the only thing we can do is to look after their, their, their bodies. And after a bit of consultation, they left it there. And if you go there between Bayer and Tilly Lascelles, it's on the left-hand side and it's called Jerusalem. Huh. So really incredibly moving talking to that guy. Um, while he was there with us, he got his grandson was with him, and they got a text from back home, and he'd become a great great grandfather for the second time. <laughs> um, so um, we we left that celebration and made it over to Sword Beach a little bit before sunset last night. And there's a simple monument there. We met a man from Bristol, England, named Richard Cottrell. His late father helped get that monument installed. Um, David Cottrell was in the Royal Navy just offshore in a destroyer called the HMS Swift on D-Day. And father and son came back almost every year for the anniversary. I asked Richard Cottrell why D-Day is important to remember, and he told me what happened when he and his dad were here for the 60th anniversary. We were here, and we were walking up after the, the uh, memorial here, and we had a lot of veterans of us, and there was a woman walking past us, and the French had given a national holiday, and there was people up and down the beaches, and the woman said, disgusting, look at them on the beaches, don't they know what day it is today? They should have respect. And one of the veterans went up and said, that's what we fought for, freedom. That's freedom there. And we all cried. <laughs> Everyone cried. There's this underlying sadness for the people who sacrificed their lives here, but there's just this sense of uh, of what was accomplished here. For me, it's like it's almost like you think about NASA doing the moon landing back in the 60s, which they had 10 years to do. D-Day's like the moon landing, but if you land at the moon, there'd be people firing at you with machine guns and artillery. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing what they accomplished, and it's, I'm, I'm really glad I made the trip this year. It's really It's been a really moving occasion so far. The other aspect that we sometimes forget is that soldiers were not the only casualties. There were, uh, were a considerable number of civilian casualties uh, as well. But the attitude seems to be that... Um, we understood that. We understood what the stakes were. And, of course, there were no – we had no precision bombing back then. I mean, you just bombed the hell out of a place, and uh, that's the way it went. Yeah, and civilians were dying under the German occupation as well. So it was – I mean, it wasn't like trading one evil thing for another. It was some sort of a, a thing that had to happen to move to the next phase of liberating Europe. And it's hard to leave. It's already been 75 years, but in some ways that seems like it was just yesterday. Historian Felix Spinell. You'll hear him every Wednesday on Seattle's Morning News, and all his features are, of course, at MyNorthwest.com.
I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle. (laughs) 